Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Love affair is over. The things we like best are either illegal, immoral, or fattening. Charles Boyer and Irene Dunn in Love Affair. Tied to each other heart and soul. Yet, they have no right to love. pictures can boast of such exciting love sequences, such sentimental scenes, such fire and fury of a boyer desperately in love, fighting the woman he loves, fighting the world he hates, to keep the one thing so vital to his happiness. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. 
As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching, all sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. You know what's interesting about that line? I do. Tell me. You do? Yeah. Okay, well, tell us. No, you tell me. It was improv from another movie. It was. Six of a kind. Right. Yeah, it was, um, uh, apparently it was a line that they they squeezed into this one. McCary, who also directed Six of a Kind, thought it would be funny, I think, and ha- had Terry say it. And then apparently uh, critics weren't fans that he, he put that in. Critics were so weird. Yeah. But did audiences like it? I just don't know. I think it's funny. I'm an audience member, and I liked it. But have you seen Six of a Kind? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. See? Uh-huh. No. No, uh-huh. I've never seen that. Uh, we're talking about Love Affair, continuation on of our awards, 1940 Best Picture uh, for Academy Awards. Uh, film was released in 1939, and it uh, was, Andy said, directed by Leo McCary, McCary and um, stars are the lovely Irene Dunn, Charles Boyer, Maria. Ospenskaya. I think it's Charles Boyer, right? Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be Boyer and Michelle all, all day. Are we going to? No, that's how I've always heard people say it. Charles Boyer. So had you seen this movie before? I had not seen this movie. I had only seen An Affair to Remember. This was one of those films that I don't think I was really aware that was out there. I don't think when I first saw An Affair to Remember, which is probably high school or so, I don't think I realized that it had been a remake. They talked about this and An Affair to Remember in Sleepless in Seattle, because Nora Ephron was certainly a fan of of both. And, and so I think that's probably where I started becoming aware of it. Then, of course, there was a, a, a remake that Warren Beatty made in the 90s that I completely forgot existed. Uh, and and so it's funny, like this is a story that I knew was out there. I just I had never gone back and sought out love affair. And I suppose to a certain extent, it may have been fine to have waited as long as I did, because it sounds like, you know, this was one of those movies that had fallen into public domain. And so most of the releases were pretty crappy until a fairly recent restoration like 2020 where they actually found a print and did a 4K restoration. And it is, I mean, it's stunning to watch now. It's just a beautiful film uh, to look it at. It is so. absolutely beautiful. I had seen An Affair to Remember, and this is very similar to uh, the Leo McCary-helmed remake of the film. Weird that there. I, I feel like this, over the last two months, I have come across a number of shot-for-shot remake movies uh, that I and it's I haven't seen many of those in my film going career, and now they're all piling up. So it it made this film very familiar, and yet there is something about Charles Boyer and and Irene Dunn that are are incredibly sort of uniquely charismatic in this film in this period. And so, 
I, I think the degree to which I, I like it is directly related to the degree to which I can get swept up in the in the romance of it. And uh, I'm curious to what degree you were swept up in the romance of it. Yeah, it's I mean, it is interesting because before uh, in preparation for this, I actually rewatched An Affair to Remember. And then I watched Warren Beatty's and Annette Bening's uh, 90s version that was once again just called Love Affair. And it is interesting to see how largely there's not a huge change in the structure of the story in any of them. And, you know, only kind of minor changes across the board that we'll certainly talk about. But it was it was interesting to never have seen this, watched both of those remakes and then come back to this one and really see how the core of the story is so strong and, and so in place when McCary first made it that it was one of those movies that it's like, well, I don't know if it really needed to do a remake. Although I, I think that it's a timeless story, so I think it's fine to kind of have those other iterations where it's um, you know different people, different times, and I think it can still work. I think to your point, watching Charles Boyer and Irene Dunn in this particular version, they had a wonderful chemistry that I really did connect with and enjoy, and I certainly get swept up into the the romance of their of their story. I, I find that to be very touching. There are some story elements that I always kind of struggle to click with. You know, I, I'm not quite sure on on some of the elements that the machinations that they go through uh, in kind of the second part of the story. Um, but it always builds to just such a satisfactory climax that it's hard to it's hard to complain too much. I agree with you. And I think that's my experience of watching this. And uh, fair to remember, obviously, is that like through the course of the movie, I'm like, ugh, bogus, dumb, silly, never happen. Ugh, look up, bogus, dumb. And by the end, I'm weeping. Like, it is that kind of movie that I don't even realize that I'm an old softie until we get to the end. And I'm like, oh, thank God, everything's resolved. All this silliness is resolved. And, uh, and I could just put it away. So I, I really like it. I'm curious, like, let's let's start with the machinations that you have trouble with and see if ours line up. What what is the thing or I should say, what are the things that give you trouble? You know, I think the the key one, well, the, there's really two that yeah. that I kind of struggle with. The first one is the decision to wait the six months for the reasons that they have, as opposed to just kind of like, let's just call it off with our the, the people that we are uh, to whom we are betrothed, and let's just make a life together. Like, instead of just going that route, they have this, let's take six months and see if we can figure ourselves out and and prove that we can actually survive on our own and then meet up in six months. Like, I love the six-month plan. I think that's really clever. Obviously, it's something that we've talked about when we looked at the Before Trilogy. It's It's kind of a fun little device in stories in love stories to to find two star-crossed lovers who there's this sense of them being made for each other and it's the tool that they use to kind of come back together and firm their uh relationship together i love all of that it's just the 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 reasoning i i buy into it i think i can buy into it with the characters you know they they're they're obviously people who just have, as he said, I've never had to work before. I need to figure that out. So I can I can kind of buy into that. Like, that's one of those things that I can kind of buy into. It's just a little rough for me. 
The one that I always have a harder time with is her decision to wait until she can walk to uh, to hook back up with Michelle because it's you know I, I don't know it's just such a strange reasoning to kind of hold off on things. It does allow for the story to build to that amazing finale, but when we're having those conversations where she's having those conversations with her ex and and he's trying to help her and she's just like, no, I, I don't want to see him again until I can stand and, and run to his arms on my own two feet. I'm like, really? I mean, come on. Like that, that's another thing that I struggle with a little bit. Yeah, no, it, we have the same, we have the same struggles. Uh, those are the two that I'm principally saying, ugh, silly, silly. And the fact that what I, I want out of their relationship doesn't align it doesn't comport with the the reveal at the end of the movie like what i want in a relationship to make it feel more real would not satisfy the needs of the dramatic romantic arc of the film it would make it more real and the movie would end and so i kind of feel like by the time we get to him discovering the painting in her bedroom and realizing the truth uh, about her situation, you know, I'm bought in. I'm I'm back around, and I've done another lap, and I'm feeling good about things again. But along the way, it's a long journey for me to kind of stay out of my head and think, why would she? Why would she do that? And and maybe there's a different movie that deals with that. That's not like a romantic comedy that deals with the grief and shame of going through such an injury and feeling like you need to hide it. That is not this movie. And I think that's where those things sort of collide for me that I have to they, they have to get out of the way. And, and I'm certainly I'm I'm I obviously can't say anything about like what that what that would really be like if I were injured in such a way and suddenly paralyzed and had to like if if this had really happened what would I be really feeling what kind of grief and shame would I be feeling I don't know maybe I'd make exactly this decision but this romantic comedy it doesn't play that way it plays silly like she made a silly decision well uh, yeah uh, well and I I I don't know if I'd call it a romantic comedy uh, first off, I, I don't. I, there's comedy in it, but I think it's definitely more of a romance film. But uh, that's kind of beside the point. I guess there is that element, and I suppose because I would say it's it's more of just kind of a romance rather than a romantic comedy. I think there is this element of her, her meeting this playboy. I mean, he is this womanizer playboy who, you know, we meet him having come back from an affair with his fiance's was it her sister i can't remember her best friend it was her best friend and he's kind of like yeah what are you gonna do like he kind of has this way about him where um it, it definitely seems more about uh kind of having fun and stuff and and so i suppose there's this element of crafting this character who perhaps finding out that she is in a wheelchair would go you know i'm not that interested anymore and lose interest and and i just don't know if that had been necessarily built up in the story where i would have right. found that michelle would have actually made that decision which would have put her into a place where she felt she needed to hide it from him and i suppose that's kind of something that if it had been in there then i could have bought into all of that a little more maybe just the fact that it's a womanizer in 1939 on a cruise ship Maybe, especially for people at the time, that was enough for the audiences to read into Terry's character that she's 
uncomfortable with the the idea of revealing that information for fear of losing somebody that she really loves. I I think that's I, I think that's the point, right? And and I that's exactly what I was trying to say, probably more clumsily, which is that that there is a there is a movie out there where that is fully developed somewhere, right? That's not this movie; it's underdeveloped, and so I don't buy it as well. The other uh, piece of it, though, which I I think could have been for my taste, more explicit is when you're talking about the reasons they take the six months. To me, it feels perfectly logical to take six months when you are talking about this womanizer, this philanderer, and, uh, you know, they're, who, they're both already entangled with other people at their destination. Like, the six months is like the ticking clock to see if you're serious about this relationship, to give yourself a chance to do the house cleaning that you need to do um, to, you know, disentangle with your other fiancé, to actually get your stuff in order. And then if you're serious, we'll meet at the top of the Empire State building and we'll know we're both there ready to go forward in this new relationship. That's a really great like a thing for this movie about two people who have an affair on a ship, though brief, and decide they want to move forward in the heat of the moment. I don't know that that was that angle was all that explicit either. Like when you talk about their reasons for for, you know, oh, I want to work for a living like it just feels um, it, it doesn't feel like it addresses the core emotional angle for me, which is, are you serious that you really want to move forward with this? What are you going to do to get your life into a position where you can demonstrate that you're serious about it? That's what, to me, six months means. And I don't know that the movie makes good on that. Uh, yeah, and I, you know, I think these points, I think, are all very strong. And I think, I mean, obviously, it's, it's there, you know, we've realized that we've come up with it and we, we kind of, you know, understand that those are the expectations the film is laying out. I think I just, it's not, and maybe we're just looking for something that's actually a little more explicit because it is asking for such reaches in those cases, uh, to have it be just a little more explicit so that it, it just feels like those leaps in logic for the characters ends up. Uh, feeling a little more realistic in terms of the scope of the story. Because you watched the other two so recently, just briefly, do either of them, I'm, I'm fair to remember, I don't think does anything differently, but does does Love Affair do anything to, uh, you know, fix any of these points? I mean, they both have their differences, certainly. I You know, um, there's... Obviously, a little more in an affair to remember because it's like an extra half hour. Like they, they have quite a bit more content in the film. Although specific moments, I can't quite pinpoint exactly what they are. Like what are the moments that were extra? But they do have stuff in it. There are some more noted changes in the 94 love affair uh, that Warren Beatty did and co-wrote with Robert Town. And that was a lot of scripted elements. I mean, they made some smart updates to that one to make sense. Like, why are they on a cruise ship going from country to country as opposed to just on a plane? Because you don't necessarily do that anymore, you know? So they actually came up with a clever way to actually get them onto a cruise ship for the whole meet queue. So that, that angle of the reworking to update it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, and they're going instead of Europe to the U.S., they're going U.S. to Australia, and they end up in Tahiti, which is where Catherine Hepburn 
who is in that story, his aunt, not his grandmother. That's where she lives. And it's, I mean, beautiful, beautiful locations. Catherine Hepburn's last film. The changes to that story, though, were pretty rough. And it just, it felt like they were trying to come up with ways to to kind of spin the character a little more and to give a little more beats to him and and update him in ways that made him again kind of fit in like he's a tv he works in uh sports uh tv and um is unhappy but it's just like the shifts that they made the things that they did with his character i just i really uh didn't care for and it just um it just felt like they were trying to come up with ways to throw more to warren Beatty. and um it just you know it just uh, was a harder film to get through that's frustrating so yeah so but again the core of it is still there to the point where annette benning when she performed that whole final scene on the couch uh you know reportedly looked at what irene dunn was doing in this film actually no i think that she was actually looking at what deborah kerr did in the, the remake and really patterned a lot of her movements and motions off of what they were doing. And now I don't know which one, maybe both. But anyway, she was very much kind of um, trying to repeat uh, beat for beat kind of the way they were performing. Interesting. I, I had, <laughs> That's an interesting take on it. Uh, for a movie that's already been done twice, why she would want to make something quite so precise is an interesting choice. Exactly. Like, like that doesn't make a, a ton of sense to me either. Like, why go that route? And, the, you know, it's interesting in the scope of films that are kind of remakes, like we've talked about all of the um, A Star is Born films. And that's an interesting story that has been able to kind of shift with the time to fit into different eras and kind of tell the same story, but it's always kind of fitting into a different space and it works really well because of that this story does kind of have this timeless feel to it and so there is this element to it where it's like well i don't know if they need to remake this one because the story ends up being so much the same to the point where the beginning of the film in every every single iteration is always news reports coming out of um the either the news or in the warren Beatty one it's like entertainment tonight of the latest news on on you know this person is taking this this womanizer is taking this trip watch out ladies he's getting married when he's getting back and like you get it from the three different countries in each of the different versions and so it's kind of funny like they are really doing everything they can to absolutely i mean I, again it's not quite shot for shot but really kind of craft the 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 exact same story over and over and it's just as much as i love an affair to remember uh, possibly a, a tiny bit more than this one it's just it is one of those stories that I'm like, I just don't know if unless you're going to really do something unique with it. I don't know if it needs to be uh, retold again. I mean, certainly not after Warren Beatty's. Well, as Warren Beatty, the the uh, uh, hero romantic uh, lead in that movie, let's talk about uh, Charles Boyer. Then uh, how does especially because you like the other movie you think you like Affair to Remember a little bit better? I, what is the degree to which it's the Charles Boyer versus Cary Grant factor? I think there's a lot to Cary Grant that's just always easy to love. I mean, we've done a whole Cary Grant series. We he's sure just have. an actor who's just absolutely wonderful to watch. And he's great in in that version. I think, honestly, it's less the Charles Boyer, uh, Cary Grant 
I, I think they both do a fantastic job in the role. I think for me, it's I, I slightly prefer Deborah Kerr than Irene Dunn, and I think that's. Uh, and now I'm doing the Sleepless in Seattle thing. Deborah Kerr, Kerr yeah. or Carr? Which one is? <laughs> and I'm doing. I I end up getting lost in that win. specifically because of that damn movie. And now I'm always like, wait a minute, which one is it? And it is. Uh, it is Deborah Kerr. I said it right. Whew. Oh man, dodged a bullet. Okay, so uh, back to Charles Boyer. Um, I. I really like Charles Boyer, and I think one of the reasons that I like this, I like his part in this movie actually more than Cary Grant. As much as I love Cary Grant, there is something about his Frenchness that gives an extra cultural obstacle uh, for their romance to overcome. Because there is such a stereotype about not just a, a womanizing man, but a womanizing Frenchman that is is like woven into the tapestry of these movies like that. The fact that he is French sends a signal that she is, if they get into a relationship with one another, she's going to have to like really figure out how to jump through flaming hoops or that if they do end up together, it will be truly the love of a lifetime because we know what we know about Frenchmen. Right. Like that's a they, they French men love women and vice versa. French women love men. It's just a romantic place. And there's a lot of romance. And I think there's something about that for me that I think is really appealing in this particular romance. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And there is I, I think you're right. There's something about kind of that French nature of his character that lends to his performance here that just kind of um, gives it that um, there's a little more of an allure to him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he already is so suave and debonair that it's just kind of easy to see uh, why all the women on the ship are kind of falling head over heels for him. Yeah, there's something there's something about that. It's not just that he's suave. It's that there's the the mystery of his sort of international vogue that is interesting. And I also love when he goes to visit, um, you know, they go to visit his grandmother and uh, I in in uh, Madeira. And I, I love that sequence because he just gets to be French with his grandmother and like. I just think that's so charming. I, I think that whole sequence is super, super charming. And um, it, it feels authentic to me in a way that sort of stands out in this movie. So something really strong about just being French. Everybody go be French and then romantic. <laughs> and speaking of his grandmother, like uh, Maria Ospenskaya is uh, wonderful in the role. And it's I mean, it's always been a great little role to play and she brings a lot to it it's she can kind of see through everything and can tell right out of the gate that there is this draw between these two that is kind of more of a made for each other sort of draw than either of them likely have with the people that they're engaged to because again they're just kind of both marrying for money and so she can tell that there's something there and we can tell that she can tell and just i mean the whole the conversations the piano i love i mean one of my favorite scenes in the movie actually doesn't involve her specifically but it involves kind of the ghosts you could say of her and the music when he comes back to see her um later in the film and she had already uh, passed away. And as he's kind of looking around, you hear that piano playing and you hear uh, Terry singing and kind of like the echoes in the space. And that that's just a very haunting scene. And it works exceptionally 
in both of McCary's versions of the film. No, absolutely. I think she's, I think you're right on with that scene. I'd forgotten uh, just how haunting it it feels when he's wandering through there. It's really, really lovely. She, I, I think it's, I'm looking at her Wikipedia page, and I, I was, it was a bit jarring. I mean, she was born in 1876, but her country of origin is Tula Russian Empire. <laughs> that is, uh, that is an era apart from where I, I think we're accustomed to uh, talking about actors. Tsarist Russia. Yeah, right. Very interesting. Fascinating. She's seen, she, she's seen a lot of stuff. Uh, died about 10 years after this movie was released. We talked uh, about her in King's Row, or we talked about King's Row. I can't remember how much we had to say about her in our conversation there. But I feel, and I may be wrong here, but uh, she may, for certain crowds, be most remembered as the old gypsy woman in The Wolfman. Yeah. That, I think, is certainly a very recognizable role that she did. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I I know we're going to be talking more about uh, the Wolfman coming up in one of uh, Ray's episodes of Sitting in the Dark. If you're not subscribed to Sitting in the Dark, check it out. We're having a good time with that show. And do you remember uh, if we've talked about Charles Boyer or not in previous episodes? I believe we have. Uh, and I I looked this up. I believe we have. I was going to try to I was going to try to joke with you and say we haven't talked about him before, but I would be gaslighting you, Pete. <laughs> It's Gaslight. That was the one. Yeah. Yes. Was that was going to be the trick because I just looked at that this morning and already <laughs> forgot it because that's how we roll. Uh, so funny. Uh, yes. Gaslight. We haven't talked about Irene Dunn at all. Um, are, have you watched much of her? Do you, do you have much of a connection to her performances in films? Um, I do. I have much of a like she is. What is she most known for? Do you think I. I don't have it off the off the dome besides showboat. Was she like anything else really, really huge? Well, looking at just her IMDb known fours are The Awful Truth from 1937, which also ha was directed by uh, Leo McCary, and that was mm -hmm. Cary Grant. So that's probably one she's seen most it. known for. This, My Favorite Wife in 1940, and I Remember Mama from 1948. Those are... Yeah. Um, again, you never know with IMDb known for is, are they really, is that what they're most known for or what? Yeah. But that's what they have. I mean, looking through her, uh, her list of films, uh, yeah, certainly Showboat is a big one, The Awful Truth. I don't know if we've talked about her in anything before. I mean, she, she kind of stopped acting in the early 50s uh, on in film. And, you know, I think that... I, you know, she worked in TV for a bit after uh, through the 50s into the 60s. But I don't know what else that she's uh, like what she was doing beyond that. Um, she was nominated for an Oscar five times uh, Best Actress, five times, uh, never won. Yeah, it's interesting. I I don't have I, I really don't have a uh, a thorough catalog of movies of hers that I've seen. Um, and I know we are going to be talking about her again this season in and in the king of siam right yeah so that's that's coming and we'll continue to build but she's been in a lot of movies and largely underrepresented in my catalog yeah i wonder if her it looks like um you know she had three box office failures uh at the end of her run of films 
And uh, it looks like that may have just been something that kind of pushed her to retire from from Hollywood, you know? Yeah. Right. Interesting. Uh, but it looks like she did become an activist and actually an American delegate to the United Nations. All right. But I, you know, I think that what I really enjoyed about her is a just a sense of heart and emotion. But I think when comparing her to Deborah Kerr, I, I felt a little more connected to Terry in An Affair to Remember than I did to Terry in this one. And I don't know. I, I don't know if that was just something because I'm more familiar with Deborah Kerr or what, but I just, that I think for me is the thing that slightly pushed that one over the edge, you know, as much as I do love Irene Dunn. And, you know, they had, I will say, like there were some great comedy beats. And, um, you know, we haven't really talked about Leo McCary, but certainly a comedy director. And there were lines like the one that, that just caught my head because it was just, it was so funny. It was toward the beginning when they meet on the boat. And, you know, she said, not that I'm prudish. It's just that my mother told me never enter a man's room in any months ending in R. And then he, his response was, your mother must be a very beautiful woman. Just like, it was such like a, like, what a strange little back and forth there. But it's just like those little beats that just like, I found to be so laugh out loud funny it's just like it's just these clever little lines between these characters that were but see uh, that's why in my in my head and heart this movie is a romantic comedy because those beats are not infrequent like there are funny bits throughout this just in the way the movie and these characters are written and so you know we may not categorize it it ends in a it or or there is a that that twist when she's actually hit by the car is uh you know it's it is a deeply disheartening moment for her character journey right it's very sad but i don't think that makes this movie unfunny right? i just oh, really no, no. yeah really enjoy it yeah, I know. And that's what I was saying is like, I, I would classify it more as kind of a romantic drama, but it certainly has a lot of comedy beats. You know, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's because of that last act. I have a hard time just calling it a romantic comedy. But um, I, you know, I don't know. I'm not exactly sure if that's completely fair. I think there's flexibility and it's so hard with genre anyway. It's like, where does it really sure. end? Who knows? Sure, Who sure. knows? But, but Leo McCary, yeah. I mean, do you like him as a director. I mean, we, you know, in our pre-show chat, we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, films that take place on cruise ships and and the Marx Brothers cropped up. And, you know, he certainly is a director who is known for some of the films uh, that he did with them. And, uh, you know, the reason that he did this is because he was looking to do something a little different. He wanted to do something that wasn't just another screwball comedy. And, um yeah, I don't know. What do you think of him and what he was bringing to the table? Well, it's it feels like some real effortless character direction, right? I I've never at once felt like I was uh, like the actors, like the performances were, you know, in any way challenged. Like it just felt super easy to watch these people and and believe that they are human and believe that the comedy was natural. That's one of the things that when you see a comedy like this, a romantic comedy, uh, a, com- a romantic uh drama with comedic beats, um <laughs> that uh, that, you know, I want to be able to walk out of this movie feeling like I'm capable of delivering on the same sort of wit and witticism that these these people are like, I want to be I want to feel like the director has put me in 
the same league as these people as feeling human and approachable and yet funny, right? They are the, in social situations, they are the best of what I could possibly be. And I really like that. It feels super uh, authentic. And and I think he's he delivers. Yeah, I, I think he captures the right comedy beats. Like all the stuff on the cruise ship is just flawless. I mean, it all worked so effortless, effortlessly. And it just like the way that they meet and connect and just everything was uh, just easy. And it just was so romantic. And um, just, I mean, all of it was there and all thanks to McCary, just the way that he crafted it. And I think that it develops. I think there's a little bit for me in kind of this slowdown when they part ways and they're both kind of figuring themselves out that whole uh, stretch of the film. It's not, I mean, it's fine. It's just, I, I think because I love them together so much that I just kind of want to get to that next part. But I, ha- I acknowledge it has to be there in order for the story to work the way it does. I did like that, the, you know, I, I couldn't find the original um, source, the, but what is quoted in Wikipedia is Clark Wales' quip from uh, uh, this magazine that I can't that can't find online recommending a leo mccary production is something like recommending a million dollars or beauty or a long and happy life any of these (laughs) is very fine thing to have the only trouble is there are not enough of them i that that generally feels uh like like my experience with his work yeah right right the it's interesting like this story uh like he came up with it he was on a cruise with his wife and trying to you know, get over his writer's block. And he, when they got back to the U.S., he saw the Statue of Liberty and he came up with this idea of this, of these people on a cruise who meet, they're both, uh, you know, connect, they're, they're both engaged to somebody else. And he kind of came up with this whole premise. And this was this period in, in Hollywood when the studio had, I, I'm not exactly sure what you'd call the role, but a story like a, a just a writer, I suppose, in some capacity. But he ended up working. I, I don't know if he came up with the story and then it got handed over to Mildred Cram or if they actually worked on it together. But they they are credited for writing the story of this and, you know, trying to understand because this was a period from the early Oscars up until 1956. They actually had an Academy Award for Best Story. And which was separate from best adapted screenplay, best original screenplay. What uh, Wikipedia says is that this Oscar for best story most closely resembles the usage of modern film treatments or prose documents that describe the entire plot and characters, but typically last lack most dialogue. So it sounds like he, along with Mildred Cram, kind of like put the treatment for the story together. And then it got handed off to Donald Ogden Stewart and Delmer Daves, uh, two you know prominent writers for the studios. And they're the ones who actually wrote the script. It's, um, yeah, it, very much the studio system in the way that they would develop these things. Yeah, such a machine. Okay, just one more little bit on uh, Boye and Dunn. Have you seen When Tomorrow Comes and Together Again? Did you say that? I haven't, but, uh, you know, I am trying to cram as many 1939 films into my brain as I can before we get to the end of this series. And When Tomorrow Comes is one of them that is on my list, since it also got released the same year. It got released the same year, and then Together Again in 1944, those were the three Boye and Dunn uh, partnership films. And 
Uh, at, at one point, apparently their relationship was called the most romantic in Hollywood. Um, so, of course, they thrust them on screen together a number of times. I uh, I have not seen either of them, so I'm eager to hear your report, particularly on When Tomorrow Comes, if they if it holds up uh, as sort of a, a spiritual relationship trilogy of unrelated films. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'll let you know when I get to that one. Yeah. Something else that is worth talking about with this, because it certainly isn't something that popped up with either of the remakes. But when this film finally was done, when the script was finally written, the production code actually rejected it because they said the story endorses adultery. And this was this period when they had a lot of these issues. And um, and it became hard for them to kind of get past that, but they were able to do it. But it's such a weird thing because it's like neither of them were married. And so I'm wondering if they actually, I, I don't know, I'd be curious, like, if the script ended up getting developed more like, were they actually both married originally? And then they ended up having to make them just engaged so that they could actually get past the production code and get the thing made, you know? It's sort of in the title. It's an affair, right? Like, <laughs> it's yeah. not like it's a surprise to anyone. Uh, but I, I do, like, I do kind of get that. Did that ever, did that perk your ears up at all as you watch any of these three movies that these, that this is a story about people who find their true love while they are somehow engaged with other people? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, it's, that is the crux of the story. Like they are, right. and and I guess that's the challenge of trying to build a story like this with a production code where um, someone's going to, yeah, right. It, yeah. It's so I don't know. Yeah. That's why I'm curious. Like I I'd love to know, like what did they have to change in order to get past the uh, production code? I just don't know. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I guess originally, I don't know like how many changes were in between this, but originally he was the French ambassador, and um, he had been caught with a mistress and was returning to the U.S., and I guess due to everything kind of leaning toward what was going on in Europe, France wanted to make sure that they were in good good stead with the U.S., and so they were really concerned about a, a French diplomat in a film having an affair with an American woman, um, afraid that that might uh, cause some uh, it, it's interesting, like the politicians at the time worried about like how films perceptions would affect what, how their country was being perceived. But, um, you know, things were things were different then. Things were different then. Yeah. Uh, well, I uh, you have anything else hot on your list? No, I think that's it. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, let's keep trucking along. Um, so we'll be right back. But first, our credits. Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Roy Spiegler, Oriol Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. You know what I got the other day, Pete? 
Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Uh, Season 13 is a fun one, looking at various awards categories over the decades, from Best Picture nominees to cinematography, adapted screenplays to visual effects, and a good number of movies we're discussing started out as books or plays that you can read now on Audible. 1940 Academy Awards Best Picture nominees of Mice and Men and Wuthering Heights. What a great way to start this season. In other series, we also covered The Killers, based on Hemingway's short story. A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, A Streetcar Named Desire. Beckett, A Boy and His Dog, The Princess Bride, Congo. The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Woman in Black. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. So we've already really been talking about it. This movie was remade twice. Were there others that we need to think about? Yeah, actually, uh, interestingly, well, we've talked about like this is the era of radio adaptations. There were two of those, and Irene Dunn actually was in both. Charles uh, Boyer was only in one of them. Also, interestingly, all of the remakes, Terry has always been Terry McKay, but the male's role has always changed in every film. And I'm not exactly sure. I couldn't find anything as to why that was, you know, exactly what was the reasoning for that. That's so funny. It's like Terry McKay really gets around in every movie. She's hooking up with a new dude. <laughs> yeah, very funny. Is that the, the Terry McKay love affair universe that we're talking about? The Terry McKay love affair universe. Uh, also, there was, you know, speaking of the remakes, this was just a weird little thing that I noticed. But you, I mean, when you watch them all, you definitely see it. There is a beat when he is on the... It's around the holidays, and he's sad. It's around Christmas, and uh, there is this... He, he kind of runs into somebody who's carrying a Christmas tree, and there's just a like an exchange of lines there or something, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. do you remember that? He runs into that guy with the Christmas tree? Yeah, and the, the guy says, you know, they won't let me on the train. He yeah. has to walk, like, 40 blocks or something, yeah. Yeah, something like that. They have that in each of the films, but the weirdest one was in the... Uh, Warren Beatty one because the person is hidden behind the Christmas tree and it's almost like they're trying to do some cameo and then they turn to walk away and in the process hit Warren Beatty in the face with the Christmas tree and 
it was such a weird thing to include in some capacity to kind of still have that scene. But I'm like, why did, why was that the way that they depicted it? I couldn't figure it out. Um, but that just speaks to kind of like, again, the, the reinterpretations of the story over time. Um, and to your uh, question, there have been two Bollywood versions of this as well. Once in 1965, once in 1999. Sometimes I think when I watch Warren Beatty movies that he and I have very different senses of humor. <laughs> I think he thinks things are funny that just don't tickle me. Oh, well. But then there's Bullworth, and I feel like yeah. he and I are right in line. So Yeah, right? How is that possible? Anyway, all right. So it's award season. It is award season. That's what why that's why we're here. Um, this film did receive six nominations. That's it. All at the Oscars, and it lost all of them. Best picture, best actress for Irene Dunn, best supporting actress for Mira, Maria Ospinskaya, best art direction, all lost to Gone with the Wind. Um, best music original song for the song Wishing that she sings and the kids sing in this film lost to, of course, somewhere over the rainbow from wizard of Oz. And we already talked about this, uh, the role that the Academy award had at this time for giving an Academy award for best story. This was nominated, but lost to Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Just before we get into the numbers, we didn't talk about the num musical number specifically. And since you brought up wishing, what did you did? Did that, did you love that song so much? Uh, it was fine. I, I think that probably the song from An Affair to Remember, not not even the one they sing um, with the kids in that one, but um, just kind of the main theme, Love Affair. Like, I, I really enjoy that song. This one, they were fine. They kind of fit for the time, but um, nothing wowed me as far as the songs themselves. Certainly not better than Wizard of Oz's songs. For sure not better than Wizard of Oz. It, it was like, I got the feeling that Leo McCary liked that song a lot. So much he was going to do it twice all the way through. It's like, no, no, please don't give me more. It's not that good a song, man. Anyway, I had to do it at the box office. Well, McCary's romance film cost $860,000 to make, which equates to $18.2 in today's dollars. The movie opened April 7th, 1939, and it did well for itself. This is where it gets frustrating, as I've been talking about, uh, like last week, uh, trying to dig up this old information. I did find the film earned $1.8 at the box office, but in the list on Wikipedia of the top 10 grossing films of the year, it's not there, but it should be. According to the $1.8 it should be coming in at number 7, beating out Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So, uh, I don't know. Who really knows? Uh, regardless, based on what I did find, it basically would have gone on to earn an adjusted profit per finished minute of nearly $230,000. Alright, so that's, uh, a, you know, maybe a magical number, but a pretty good one, and it's a positive one. Yeah, hey, enough for McCary to fall in love with his own story and eventually want to retell it himself. Yeah, for sure. That's actually... You know, in the scope of pre-show chats, certainly something that we could have done is directors who have remade their own films. I don't know how big that list is, but certainly there's a, a conversation to be had with that decision that filmmakers have. Yeah, I absolutely think that that's worth doing. Maybe we'll have another one. Who knows? Maybe. Somewhere in our list this season, maybe there's another one hiding in there. Uh, well, uh, I, I do love the movie. So Yeah, I do too. It's it's a great film. It has its issues, but man, does it nail the end, and it just hits you in the heart. Uh, just so touching 
every time. And so, um, yeah, it's it's an easy film to watch and revisit. And it's just, again, the restoration is just simply gorgeous right now. Yeah, lovely, lovely experience. So uh, here we are. What, I, what possibly could come next, Andy? Uh, that's right. We'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie of Mice and Men. George, where are we going? Forgot that already, did you? We have a couple of acres. You know, D.R.O. and they couldn't nobody can us. And if we didn't like a guy, we can say, get. And he'd have to do it. Well, he gets in trouble all the time. Like he done at weed. You wouldn't tell nobody, would you? What are you doing weed? the way a guy feels about his dog. Candy ain't being nice to him, leaving him alive. All right. Letterboxd, Andy, uh, you know Letterboxd. I know you do because you're on it all day long, like a real addict. You're a, a addict with no vowels in that either. Uh, it, it is our favorite social media network for movie lovers. Uh, you can find us over there at letterboxd.com slash the next reel. And uh, that's where you can sign up. You can start tracking the movies you watch. You can rate and review movies, your reviews. Other people can read your reviews. You can read other people's reviews. It is a fantastic community. We have all of our show watch lists over there, all of our upcoming season watch lists. You can grab and, and um, watch right along with us and use it as a bit of a bingo card to track your own watch. And that is where we are going to review this film today. If you want to get rid of the ads and support the fantastic Kiwi team that makes this service, visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd. You'll be whisked over to the checkout page where you can upgrade to patron or pro account and save 20% off. It works for renewals as well. Andy, what are you going to do with your stars today? It's an interesting film. Like when I watched the other versions, I, I think I gave an affair to remember three and a half stars. Love affair, I probably gave you know, I don't know, a half star. It, I just struggled with that one so much. And, but in the process of like thinking about the stories and connecting with the stories, I ended up raising my star rating for An Affair to Remember to four stars. And I feel like this one is right there as well. It's four stars. Like they both, they both work really well. There are some things that 
that I do struggle with, but largely, man, it's just that end just hits me in all the right ways. So four stars and a big old heart for me. We're right in the zone, although I think I'm going to have to uh, uh, rewatch it a fair to remember because I think that's going to end up being a five for me. And this is a solid four. Uh, yes, absolutely. With a heart for sure. And I don't think I'm even going to watch Beatty. Don't bother. Don't Based on your, bother. Re- your review, I'm not going to bother. Yeah. Thanks for that. Well, don't forget, visit thenextwheel.com slash letterbox to get your patron or pro membership. It works for renewals as well. So what did you think about Love Affair? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel in our Discord community where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox giveth, Andrew. As Letterbox always doeth. Is yours long or short? Mine is short. Funny or sad? Serious. Ooh. Romantic, okay. maybe. All right. I think mine is long. With it, It's long, romantic, but with comedic beats. Okay. Why Just like this start movie. Then? All right. This is a three and a half star from Taylor Leverage, who says, <laughs> Charles Boyer is like the Pokemon evolution of Maurice Chevalier. They both got the <laughs> French accent, but Boyer has much more maturity and serene charisma. <laughs> That's the weirdest blending of, of things that I've heard. But sure, I can actually see it. <laughs> you know what? I'm not even going to read the rest if you want it. Taylor Leverage is... Taylor actually writes uh, a, an extended review of the actual film, but I think I think we're just going to leave it with that. It was actually just that. Pokemon Evolution of Chevalier. <laughs> so funny. Well, uh, mine is a four-star by Ham Fruitcake, uh, who has this to say, <laughs> there's a beautiful moment where Irene Dunn walks onto a balcony and leans back to gaze at the skyline wistfully. The door swings back to reveal the reflection of the Empire State Building, and I throw my arms into the air. This is cinema. Ah, I I completely agree. Wonderful note. Good note. Thanks, Letterboxd.